0: Welcome to FEPS Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on FEPS-Europe.eu.
1: So, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to another edition of FEPS Talks the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. I am Saeed al Special Advisor to uh, FEPS on the Green Deal, and I'm very happy to welcome today to the program Didrik Samson, the Head of Cabinet of Executive Vice President Franz Timmermans in charge of the European Green Deal. Didrik, welcome to the program. Hello. There is a a lot to talk about. Uh, Just about one year and a half after the uh, European Green Deal was launched, uh, co-legislators reached an agreement on the European climate law just a few weeks ago. Last week, the Commission published its renewed sustainable finance strategy that should help reorient private capital flows towards investments in a climate-neutral and circular economy. And yesterday, of course, was the big day for the European Green Deal with the adoption of the fit for 55 package that should be the translation into actions of the EU's commitment uh, to reduce emissions by 55 percent by 2030. So we will of course focus on the fit for 55 but before diving into the package maybe um, let me ask you to say a bit more about the importance of the European climate law uh, also called the, the model law uh, not only for uh, this package but also for for the longer term uh, climate actions of, of the EU
0: yeah thank you very much uh, but before I do that um, let me spend a few thoughts on what's happening out there right now we are recording this on the 15th of July and at the moment there's casualties in Belgium in Germany and uh, huge devastation in those countries including also the Netherlands because of the torrential rainfall Uh, it's it's a horrible sight if you see that what's happening um, whole uh, villages wiped away by the by the currents um and it also reminds us what what can happen uh when nature uh takes its course in the wrong way so that was maybe also what we had in mind such uh, to to prevent such devastation when we made this climate law uh, a few um not not a few years ago but a a year ago when we presented it Uh, it was And I I remember vividly uh, that uh, it was presented in the beginning of March uh, 2020, and the EVP, uh, Franz Timmermans, responsible for the Green Deal, said that this instrument, this climate law, was actually to discipline ourselves, ourselves meaning politicians and governing bodies, because we knew from experience that long-term visions and long-term objectives get, get wiped away when there's incidents. Uh, going by, taking all, away all the political attention, all the political capital, and sometimes even the normal financial capital. And only a week after that, Europe went into lockdown because of mm-hmm. COVID, turning our world really upside down. Um, so, and I must admit that during those first weeks of lockdown, uh, I despaired about the future of the Green Deal because I had seen that before. When Europe finally musters the courage to put a, a dot on the horizon and to say, okay, this is where we need to go and we need to step up to the plate for climate change and we need to fight it for our children and grandchildren. And then, because in 2008, Al Gore had mesmerized Europeans with its movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And I remember Balkan and the Blair, the then Prime Minister of the Netherlands and uh, the UK writing an op-ed in the financial Times saying okay now this is our moment this is our time etc and some nice plans were made and before they were actually finished or before the ink was even dry Lehman Brothers fell and we turned the world fell into the financial crisis euro crisis economic crisis and we haven't heard uh, much about an inconvenient truth ever since and that fate was actually threatening also the Green Deal. Because what is a bigger event than COVID? What can take politicians' attention more away from a long-term target than the urgency of COVID? Um, And you could almost say rightly so, because COVID was and is an urgent crisis that we need to fight. But that didn't happen. Uh, And I'm not saying that the climate law caused, caused that or was the cause of it not happening and the Green Deal still being there. But I do think things have changed since 2008 when a crisis wiped out uh, the prospects and the commitments that we had at that time. This time it didn't happen, luckily. This time the Green Deal is still there and actually was put on steroids because of the recovery and resilience facility being put in place as a response to COVID but was actually not... Just a response to COVID was also a pathway to a sustainable future, with 37 percent of the investments being made or being committed to uh, sustainable investments. So the climate law proved to be more important, much more important than we thought it would be at the moment when we when we yeah. launched it. I'm happy that we have the political agreement on it too. And we even signed it into law, which is always a, a lot later than the political agreement due to the procedural reasons. But we have it now. And it's very important now because I can tell you what happens after yesterday when we launched the Fit for 55 package. People, governments, industry, other stakeholders will try to escape. Um, and I, I sometimes even don't blame them for that response. It is sometimes scary to see what is needed to get to 55, uh, okay. but I'm going to tell you the truth. It's inescapable because we signed that
1: into law and we're now bound to it. Excellent. And in a way, what you're saying is that that somehow the COVID-19 crisis triggered some change also in the mindset of economists and policymakers to, to you know to introduce maybe... Unorthodox, more daring proposals to address global challenges. So I think uh, uh, there is a momentum there, and and indeed, let's move to the to the Fit uh, 455 package, which is of course a, a very impressive uh, set of proposals that are interconnected, the different building blocks that are supposed to be aligned because everything is connected and and linked with each other, and that together should help to to accelerate the climate transition. Um, so it's it's a huge thing. So maybe we should. Try to address it in different uh, steps. And let me first ask you to to summarize a bit the key takeaways or the messages that you would like to convey and that will help us to understand the logic of of the package. That's
0: actually three. Uh, And the first one is pretty reassuring. Most of it is already there. This is not the revolution out of the blue. We have already an emission trading system. We have the effort sharing. We have the renewable energy directive. We have actually some pretty ambitious targets for 230. We never called it the fit for 40 package, but actually that is what we have in place right now. And we're doing fine. Europeans, Europeans are doing fine. Uh, you could say relatively to the rest of the world, but also in absolute time, terms, we're still doing fine. We have grown 60% since 1990 while reducing our emissions with 24%. We can do this. So don't think that what we did yesterday is dropping a bomb out of the blue sky. That's not hap- That didn't happen, and we would never do that. That's not how Europe is built. That's not how we do things here. So that's the first reassuring part of the message. The second and the third are maybe a bit less reassuring, but let me explain them. The second is, if you want to move from a 40 to a 55 society, so to speak, eh? so from that pretty big ambition, the real urgency because that's the difference between minus 40 that made some of us or a lot of us proud because oh the biggest ambition ever in the world that's true but it's by no means meeting the environmental urgency and that's what we we do with minus 55 if you move from minus 40 to minus 55 you cannot rely on incremental change you cannot put the efficiency a little edge a notch up And a few more windmills and a few more solar panels. No, you need transformational change. Uh, And two examples of those, the steel sector, will have to change completely, transformationally. Because setting up a blast furnace and putting coal in it and iron ore and then putting a fire in it and making steel... That's not how you can keep doing it. And you can make them more efficient, and the European steel industry did, and they did a great job. But it needs, we need to, have to to move to to transformational change. Hydrogen steel, uh, carbon-free steel, which is a huge challenge. And the other example in industry, and not by coincidence, the biggest industry of Europe, cars. The, the internal combustion engine will meet at the end of its lifetime. After 150 years or more than that, we are ready for something new. And actually, the car industry is ready for something new. You see it happening right now. The move to electrical cars is mind-boggling. It's spectacular. That's real change. And we need that. We need more of that. So that's the second one, transformational change. And you might think, sitting back in your home, okay, that's over there, that's big industry. They will take care of that. But the third message is, if you want to move from a minus 40 to a minus 55 society, everybody has to join the party and so far electricity and industry have done most of the lifting they have brought us the minus 24 that I just uh, not, uh, that I just mentioned um, but build environment road transport so our houses and our cars haven't joined the party yet transport emissions have only gone up and in our buildings emissions have been gradually embarrassingly slowly going down. And we need to increase the pace of that. So yes, everyone has to join this project or party or whatever you want to call it. And that's going to bring change to our homes and to our cars and to the way we drive and sometimes the way we behave, the way we
1: live. And that is scale. And And we we know that. And that brings us to actually the the core of of the proposal, which is a revision of the emission trading system and also the, the inclusion of a new trading system, actually specifically designed uh, for to include fuels used by buildings and road transport. Maybe we should should focus a bit on that because um, and I know this was heavily debated in recent weeks. Also, because uh, most people understand that this is very close to the consumers, to the citizens, and uh, strongly related to the social dimension, uh, which, for progressives, of course, is a key condition for a successful transition to to address these uh, distributional effects. And uh, Executive Vice President Timmerman said himself on many occasions, the transition will have to be just or there will just be no transition. And so my question to you is, how have you addressed this this, uh, complex intersection between environment and social considerations?
0: Okay, yes, let me spend a minute on that. Because indeed, when we concluded that everyone has to join the project, including our houses and our cars, and so ourselves, us, uh, the next question is how? Um, how can we do that best? And we have turned every possibility upside down, analyzed every measure, instrument, target, price, whatever we we could invent, and we came up with this. Why? Because it's the best instrument to reach the goal. And I, I can explain you the advantages of the emission trading system. But let me say first for the listeners and the viewers what it's not it will not require households to buy eu allowances in the emission trading system when you are at the at the gas station filling your tank calling the london stock exchange to buy a few more of those allowances we will put the onus the the in, the uh, incentive on the obligation to buy allowances for the products that they sell to the fuel producers multi billion euro companies that can take that incentive and translate it into action. And that's actually the first biggest advantage. You put the price incentive there where the action can take place, which is completely different from a tax. An excise duty on petrol doesn't incentivize Shell to do whatever with their fuels because the the excise duty is paid by the household at the end of uh, of the value chain. And whatever they do with their fuel will not influence that excise duty. But now there's a new assessment to make in the boardroom of Shell. Do I buy all those allowances every year for my petrol and my gasoline? Or do I decarbonize my petrol and my gasoline? Or find new business models to make my consumers drive differently or less so that I don't have to buy all those allowances? That's a new assessment, a market-based assessment, uh, where... That will change things. And I'm not talking theory here. This happened in the electricity sector. Mm -hmm. In the electricity sector, which is, by the way, half of our energy bill, and which is already under the ETS for 15 years, they had a new assessment to make in the boardroom. Do I keep that coal-fired power station open, blasting all the coal-fired electrons towards our consumers? Or... Do I close that one because it saves me the obligation to buy all those EU allowances that get more expensive every year and go into decarbonized electricity? Maybe first gas, but in the end, and we see that now happening at incredible speed: wind and solar energy. It happened before successfully, at the same in, with the same instrument. So, but that's not the only uh, advantage. The other advantage is obviously that it guarantees you meeting the target because we have a cap Um, and not by coincidence, the ETS system on electricity and industry resulted in them meeting a target while build environment and road transport have missed consistently every target that we set out for those sectors in the last 15 years. And now the third advantage, it creates revenues to address the social challenge. Because if you put a challenge into society, minus 55 which is a big ball and you just press it into society you say well this is the challenge you all have to deal with i can tell you not everyone in europe is able to accommodate that challenge in the same way we in this conversation we can we can pay a little more for our energy and also for our petrol and we can even consider buying another car or in or renovating our house there's 50 million households in Europe that cannot afford to, to worry about the end of the planet because they worry about the end of the month. Uh, they can't afford the luxury of this whole conversation because they bloody can't pay the bill. And we need to help those households to make the same change. And you can do that if you, can, if you have the money for it. To either give to them directly in income support which is possible and it happens a lot in European countries, or, more sustainable, invest for them in their houses, which they most often do not own. So we have to oblige the landlord to take the action. But if you only oblige the landlord to take the action and don't give them them the money, they will just translate that action into higher rents. So there you go, being the tenant. Yes, your energy bill is lower after the house is insulated and you use less gas. But your rent is higher. Nothing nothing changed or even to the worse. So we need to, that money in order to accommodate that those people to help the change happen. And there's no instrument that delivers you the money on a European level because that's the
1: fourth big. Uh, yeah, and, and it's about a considerable amount of money, I understand.
0: Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. We're talking 40 billion a year in terms of that's the whole turnover of this new system. And we, we would like to use 25% on a European scale to address the European challenge because we are Europeans and we need to show and, and to, uh, to have European solidarity in our in system. Because there's a lot of people that have said to me in the last weeks, oh, no, no, don't do this. Yellow vests all over the place, you know it. Uh, let's take another way. Well, I can tell you there's only one other way to go, which is regulation and tax. Because you need to regulate in order to change things. If you don't have a price mechanism or a price incentive in that boardroom of Shell, then you need to tell Shell what the f- whatever you do, you have to decarbonize your product uh, by obligation. Then what they will do is very simple. They will do it and translate the higher costs of that to the to the consumer. And where's your money to help that consumer? You can only have that money if you tax. You tax the rich and you give some of it back to people that cannot afford it. It's the whole essence of politics, Mm -hmm. redistribution. But the problem with tax is that it's national. So in Luxembourg, they will do this. Fine. So taxing all Luxembourgers and then help the ones that really need it. And then from Luxembourg, we wave good luck to Bulgaria with their three times as big challenge. They don't have the means to address the social challenge. We need European solidarity in the system. So there's four reasons why the ETS is actually the best way to go. And still, we say as commission, if there's a better way that we couldn't come up with because of our limited ability to, well, predict the future or to think of every option, uh, give me another one. But I can tell you what's not an alternative, which is don't do it because Mm -hmm. then we don't meet
1: our targets. Dietrich, another element of of, uh, another part of the social dimension, let's say, of the ETS is, of course, the the implications for jobs and and, um, obviously uh, accelerating the the reduction of the cap, uh, the number of allowances that are available, therefore mechanically decreasing the uh, emissions is, of course, a good thing. Uh, but it forces our industry to adapt very fast and may end uh, with what we call carbon leakage, huh? making uh, imported goods more more competitive co- compared to EU goods. And so I understand that uh, one of the uh, novelties of the package, of course, is the introduction of the carbon border adjustment mechanism. Could you quickly explain how actually this works and how we can also safeguard jobs in Europe?
0: Yeah, you're, because you're completely right. Eh? Uh, if we make things in Europe very expensive uh, and in the rest of the world, things are very cheap, uh, companies will move their activities elsewhere will add, and shedding jobs in Europe and uh, emitting more CO2 elsewhere. So that's what we call carbon leakage. The carbon moves to another part of the planet and still burns our planet. So we need to prevent that. And in order to do that, you need to level playing field. It's very simple. Um and so far, we did that in a very simple way. Uh, we gave our industry free allowances. So actually, we had a high-level playing field ourselves. This is the rest of the world. And we said, okay, for steel, you have to compete with them. This is where you end up. Free allowances. No, no way to pay. You're fine. That is fine in terms of level playing field, but it's on a very low level. So what we now do is something is completely different. When steel from China enters the European border, it's okay to come in if you have paid. So instead of giving our industry free allowances, we ask imported products to pay the same amount for for their carbon footprint as European products. And then you end up with a level playing field on a higher level, better for the environment. That's how CBAM works. Uh, We are going to start with five of those products which are easy to handle, etc., But we are actually aiming to make this um, society-wide system. But actually, our, our main aim is not to do it. Because the fun part of this is, obviously, if China would introduce carbon pricing, and by the way, fun fact, they are doing today, they start with it on a pretty low level, but every start is a good one. Then Chinese products move in on this level. Well, fine, you can just enter Europe. No, Mm -hmm. nothing to pay because you already have your carbon pricing at home. That's actually the ideal scenario that we have a whole CBAM in place, which doesn't create any revenues because every product coming into Europe is subject to the same carbon pricing as we have in
1: Europe. Exactly. But aren't you afraid to to have some fierce opposition, let's say, from some third countries who See this as uh, you know a way to, to tax their goods and create some imbalances. No, it will have what, to be discussed.
0: Kind of, absolutely, but what kind of story would would Turkey have to to become angry at Europe? Because the, then the only way they can become angry is they they that when they tell us that they want European industry to pay for carbon emissions and they want Turkish industry not to pay and they want to keep it that way, well. Mm-hmm. I can understand the conversation, <laughs> but it's not a very fair one. Eh? Uh, mm-hmm. in, in, so, no, in, we need to have that level playing field. So far, we realized it by making, giving free allowances to the European industry yep. for justifiable reasons, but actually we hurting the environment doing that. We need mm-hmm. to
1: stop that. But we know that, that thinking... some countries um, will actually implement totally different approaches. Uh, like in the US, they don't see a possibility for political reasons to introduce carbon pricing that they will do it in a different way is that also something that you you would see like equivalent you do know,
0: yeah well in our in our regulation we say carbon pricing is carbon pricing you don't have to do an ets you can also do a carbon tax mm. which is ineffective much more ineffective but if for political or not, or other reasons it's but it's there's one advantage it's simple so okay if you like simple systems and small government the U.S., uh, they might, you might go for it. Uh, uh, we don't mind. Carbon pricing is carbon pricing, but you have, you need some carbon pricing. You can't say, oh, I have a very gaserman policy in in Brazil. It doesn't involve carbon pricing, but rest assured, it will be fine. No, <laughs> it's not fine because your industry is competing on a different level than the European industry, and that is non-level playing field, and we need to level it. Mm-hmm. in order and,
1: to prevent and later this year we, we will have the cop 26 in, in glasgow uh, do you see a, a role for the european union there to put let's say the fit for 55 spirit on, on the global agenda and try to convince partners to follow us or how do you see the agenda at the global level for for the foreseeable well, future the
0: the experience and it's actually not only an international diplomacy it's every all actually in life, is that your arguments are just as credible as your action at home. If you tell the rest of the world to decarbonize and you don't do it yourself, you can better stay home. Nobody will believe you. And nobody will follow you. Now, we have shown that we are doing it ourselves. And by the way, we are the only continent that is doing that. Others have targets, but not yet a policy to, make that, to meet that target. And I'm anxious to see the U.S. coming forward with it. And I actually hope and also expect that they do not in Glasgow because they also know that you're only as credible as your action at home. Well, we are. And we will use that credibility to make a difference in Glasgow because Glasgow is actually our one and only chance to uh, deliver on the promise of Paris because Paris was, was good, and I've been crying there and opening Champagne, etc. because we were all so happy. But it was just a promise, an empty one if we do not deliver on it. The, the sheet of paper that we promised in, in Paris, where every country would drop a figure in that table and all the figures would add up to reductions that bring us below two degrees or even one and a half, that table is empty still, very empty, scaringly empty. And where there's numbers, the numbers are, are too low in terms of the ambition is too low. Uh, mm-hmm. So we need to, to ramp up the ambition in Glasgow.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and we have now set our steps and, 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 I, and also in terms of ambition other, others have. So we have a much more optimistic atmosphere towards Glasgow than uh, let's say a year ago when there was a completely different man in the White House. But we're not there yet. Not not anywhere near
1: there. Let, let's maybe come back to to the package uh, and and say a bit about transport because this is of course a very difficult uh, sector uh, with all kinds of subsectors. So maritime is now going to be integrated in the ETS system. I I uh, take it that uh, some of the loopholes of the aviation industry will be uh, taken out and there is also the phasing out of the combustion engine uh, vehicles. Uh, you know is there anything you, you would like to add to the transport? Very difficult. everybody uh, has to move, goods have to be moved so it's a sector that everybody cares about.
0: yeah and and, and you might indeed think Ooh, that's a complicated set of, of regulations eh? and one on aviation and actually two on maritime or actually also two on, on aviation, on the fuels and on the on the planes. Same for ships, on the fuels and on the emissions. And then we have the ETS for road transport, we already discussed. And then we have the CO2 emission standards for cars. And that is actually a general remark that is made about this package. It's it's a lot, and it's all interconnected. It's complicated. Yes, because it's about reality. In in theory, if you have one target, you need one instrument. Uh, famous economists have have argued that for every one target, you only need one instrument. Yes, that is if we human beings would be perfect spheres, moving in a vacuum, taking only rational decisions. Well, unfortunately, that's not the case. Or fortunately, actually, because that's the joy of life. But it also means that you can't reach one target with just one instrument. This is not about pushing a ball forward that you can just roll with one hand. It is about herding cats. Uh, If you have four cats at home, and in my childhood we had... You know, if you want to chase those four cats in w- through one small door, you have to be all over the place at the same time. It, you will never make it, by the way. But you have to be left, right, front, center, in the middle, everywhere, because they go in all directions. And that's what society is. So we need, indeed, different instruments to guide, and, or you could say nudge, uh, encourage, and sometimes a bit more than just encourage society into the right direction. Uh, And that's why this package might sound or seem complicated. But as I said in the beginning, the reassuring part of the message is a a big part of it, the complicated part, is already operational and it works fine.
1: We're almost at the end of our conversation because uh, time is limited. But obviously, the launch of this package is not the end of the journey. It's rather the end of the beginning of the journey and uh, now starts a process of negotiations with the parliament, with member states, that can be tough and sometimes difficult. How do you see, actually, this next phase? And and how can you ensure that the consistency remains in place and that, uh, in the first place, the level of ambition uh, remains in place at the end of of this process?
0: Well, actually, that's because of the first subject of this uh, conversation that we touched upon, the climate law. You actually could see the climate law as the key of the doors of the room that we are in. And we we locked the doors and we threw the key away. (laughs) Because every of those three institutions will have its own views and its own uh, preferences on how this package should be shaped. But there's no escape. You can't escape the room. 55 is the target that we are bound to and which is actually only the intermediate stop towards the end point of the journey, which is climate neutrality in 2050. All three institutions are bound to, and I've already heard many of them in the last days or even weeks saying, "Oh, okay, I don't li- like that part of the package. And, and the fun part is it is inescapable. I have here a little ball that is I used as a child. It's a puzzle, and it consists of 12 pieces, very small pieces. And you can take it apart. You can take one out, no problem. But you have to, to put one back because otherwise it's not a ball anymore. So that's what we will do in our conversation with Parliament and Council. We we'll say, okay, this is our target. If you want to, and it's twelve separate pieces. If you want to take one out, quite difficult, by the way, but you can do that. You can take this piece out. Well, put this piece, put another piece back because. Let's call this the ETS for road transport and buildings. I take that out. It's not a ball anymore. There's a hole here. Somebody needs to put something back. And if that's better, fine. Then we have a better ball at the end and everybody's happy. But there's no option to take something out, walk out of the room and think you're done because you're not. Right.
1: Great. Uh, Very last question regarding your own role. I mean, I guess you have spent a lot of time recent weeks to you know make this happen and and it must have been a huge effort by by you and and teams in the commission but uh, will will your focus uh, shift now to other things I mean what is next on your plate Uh, are we done now Uh, or
0: no no, as you said this is just just the the end of the beginning and now the real journey starts Um, a company with an international objective we talked about Glasgow that will take most of our attention in the next six months basically I mean uh, EVP Timmermans is going to to travel and never come home again until Glasgow is, is done. So that's the next. So while we have sort of timed it a little, we have now dropped 12,000 pages on Europe. And um, while everybody is reading that, we are traveling in the rest of the world, trying to convince the rest of the world to join us in this journey towards climate neutrality. That should be signed or whatever ceremony in Glasgow. Um, and then we tr- turn back to the heart of the, or to the well let's say home affairs because that's the moment where council and parliament might have made up their minds and then we start the negotiations, as we call in the trilogues towards the final package, which will take us wi- well into 2022. And what I do afterwards, I don't have a
1: I don't have a clue. Okay, many thanks, Lidri. I'm afraid our time is up. Thank you very much. It was very uh, useful. And, uh, of course, this is a topic we will speak about many times in future. This was FEPs Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies in Brussels. You can find our series on all podcast platforms. And please do make sure you subscribe.
0: Thank you for your attention. If you found our conversation interesting, do not hesitate to share it on social media with the hashtag FEPs Talks. More is yet to come. Stay tuned!